So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Welcome to this late hour, a three-part special of the Shroud of Turin. host, Casey Knowlton. Blessings to you, friends, on this, our Lord's Ascension Day. Welcome back to the three-part special on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't listened to my interview with Barry Schwartz of the Shroud of Turin Research Project, or STERP, on the last two episodes, I'd highly recommend going back and listening to those before moving on. On today's episode, I want to explore more of the unique features about this cloth giving my own top five points of evidence that point to its authenticity. I will also give a summation about this artifact as to what it means for us today. In my interview with Barry Schwartz, he discussed many aspects of the Sturp team's scientific analysis that was done to the Shroud, along with a breakdown of several key refutations that are common when debating the artifact's authenticity. We learned that the Shroud cannot be a painting, a photograph, or a scorching, much time was given over to the carbon-14 dating tests and why they were flawed, including but not limited to the fact that the Prey manuscript in Hungary displays an image of Jesus being wrapped in his burial shroud, matching the depiction we see on the shroud itself. It shows the distinct herringbone weave, Jesus appearing naked with the thumbs on his hands not visible, and last but not least, the distinct L-shaped burn holes that also appear on the shroud. It dates almost 70 years earlier than the earliest carbon dating done on the shroud, lending a high level of credibility to the idea that the shroud is older than the tests indicate. Today I want to discuss just some of the other unique features of the shroud that I think point to it being the authentic burial cloth of Christ himself. In researching my top five points for today's episode, I discovered through shroud.com a paper titled Science and the Shroud of Turin. It was authored by Father Robert J. Spitzer, Ph.D. He brings together evidence from multiple experts from the STIRP team related to all of the points I had in mind, so I will be reading excerpts from it in today's episode. This paper will also be linked in the show notes. Come along as I count down my top five points of observational evidence concerning the most mysterious an incredible Christian artifact of our time, the Shroud of Turin. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. 
Point 5. The Sidarium of Oviedo. I'd like to start outside of the shroud itself and look to another important relic said to be connected to the shroud, the Sidarium of Oviedo. It is another ancient linen cloth said to be the facial cloth that was put over Jesus' face after the crucifixion. Like the shroud itself, we cannot know for certain that this is the cloth that was used after the death of Christ. What is of interest, though, is that the blood type of the sidarium is the same as the shroud type AB, a rather unique blood type. While this information alone could be a coincidence, what is striking is that the cloths also share the same blood stains. When scientifically analyzed, it was determined that the stains matched the face and neck regions of the shroud, meaning that the cloths must have been in contact with one another on the same man at some point in time. Here are six observations given by Spitzer in his paper. The presence of a fluid that would have formed in the lungs during asphyxiation and the drying patterns of the blood and fluids on all four sides of the cloth indicate a series of events strikingly similar to those recounted about the burial of Jesus in the four Gospels. Furthermore, it is evident that the face cloth was taken off the dead man's face before the main shroud was applied prior to the burial. This corresponds to the account of the empty tomb in the Gospel of John. Simon Peter, following him, also came up, went into the tomb, saw the linen cloth lying on the ground, and also the cloth that had been over his head. This was not with the linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. John 26-7 How can the investigators be so certain that the sidarium touched the same face as the Shroud of Turin? There are six major kinds of coincidences between the two cloths. One, the bloodstains contain human male DNA and the rare type AB. 2. The length of the nose through which the pleural oedema fluid was discharged was just over 3 inches, 8 centimeters, the same size as the man on the Shroud of Turin. Number 3. Since the sudarium was not used to wipe the face but only placed on the face in a stable position, the stains on the sidarium can be laid over the image of the face on the Shroud of Turin. The positioning of the wounds relative to the beard is an exact fit. This would be extremely difficult to duplicate unless the face that touched the sidarium and the shroud were very similar. Number 4. The stain on the side of the mouth visible on the sidarium was confirmed to be present on the shroud through the VP8 photo enhancements of Dr. John Jackson of the STIRP investigation team. Number five, the blood stains resulting from the thorns on the nape of the neck on the sudarium correspond perfectly to the blood stains on the Shroud of Turin. Number six, Dr. Alan Winger used a polarized image overlay technique on photographs of both cloths and discovered 70 coincidences on the frontal stains of the sudarium and the Shroud, and 50 points of coincidence on the rear side of the sudarium and the Shroud. There are so many coincidences between the wounds and fluid markings on both cloths that Goosen notes, the only possible conclusion is that the Oviedo sidarium covered the same face as the Turin shroud. Spitzer goes on to lay out the significance of these two cloths being linked, as the sidarium first enters the historical record in Spain during the year 616 AD. Given this fact, that puts the shroud 644 years further back in history than the earliest date given by the now infamous carbon-14 dating tests. Point 4. The Cloth Itself The Shroud of Turin has a very distinctive, intricate herringbone weave. 
known to have been in use during the first century, but not in medieval times. This lines up with the biblical narrative of Joseph of Arimathea, who both provided the burial clothes and the tomb after Christ's death. Given he was a wealthy man, it would make sense for the shroud he provided to be a more intricate one. Additionally, the cloth measures exactly eight cubits long by two cubits wide in the Assyrian cubit, the cubit in use during the first century, which is the exact size prescribed in the Jewish law. The cloth also contains small bits of cotton mixed with the flax linen. This practice was not uncommon and was also allowed under Jewish law. The interesting thing about the cotton fibers tested by Ray Rogers is that almost no vanillin was present. Vanillin is an organic compound that would have been present in the cotton fibers if the shroud was truly a medieval relic. Given that only trace amounts of it were found point to a much older dating of the relic. Let's visit Spitzer's paper again. Rogers developed a vanillin test to measure the age of cellulose in ancient fabrics. Lignin can be converted to vanillin, an organic compound that decays with age. By measuring the percentage of vanillin in cellulose fibers and various materials of ancient origin, the age of fabrics, within a defined range of error, can be reasonably estimated. Rogers performed these vanillin tests on several ancient fabrics and then compared them to the shroud. He concluded that the 1988 carbon-14 test was not consistent with the vanillin test. If the shroud had been produced between 1260 and 1390 AD, as indicated by the radiocarbon analysis, lignin should be easy to detect. A linen produced in 1260 AD would have retained about 37% of its vanillin in 1978. The Holland cloth and all other medieval linens gave the test, i.e. tested positive, for vanillin whenever lignin could be observed on growth nodes. The disappearance of all traces of vanillin from the lignin in the shroud indicates a much older age than the radiocarbon laboratories reported. Rogers anticipated the objection that the fire of Chambray would have heated the shroud, accelerating the disappearance of vanillin in the cellulose fibers. But he responds that the fire alone could not have been responsible for the disappearance of all the vanillin in the shroud because the shroud was folded and therefore was not exposed evenly to the heat. Moreover, the shroud was not situated near the fire long enough to produce a complete disappearance of vanillin if it originated in the 13th or 14th centuries, as supposedly indicated by the carbon-14 testing. He notes in this regard, the fire of 1532 could not have greatly affected the vanillin content of lignin in all parts of the shroud equally. The thermal conductivity of linen is very low, therefore the unscorched parts of the folded cloth could not have become very hot. The cloth center would not have heated at all in the time available. The rapid change in color from black to white at the margins of the scorches illustrates this fact. Different amounts of vanillin would have been lost in different areas. No samples from any location on the shroud gave the vanillin test, i.e. tested positive. If the fire of Chambray cannot explain the absence of vanillin in the shroud, then what can? Rogers says we will have to make recourse to the same process that explains vanillin's complete absence in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient materials which are over 1500 years old, namely the aging process. Because the shroud and other very old linens do not give the vanillin test, i.e. test negative, the cloth must be quite old. A determination of the kinetics of vanillin loss suggests that the shroud is between 1300 and 3000 years old. Even allowing for errors in the measurements and assumptions about storage conditions, the cloth is unlikely to be as young as 840 years. 
The median age of the shroud within Roger's broad margins of error is 2,150 years old, which allows the origin of the shroud to be situated near the crucifixion of Jesus in 30 AD. An additional note concerning the fire of Chambray that I find quite fascinating is that the shroud, which was being stored in a silver chest, was damaged by molten silver drippings due to the heat of the flames beginning to melt the container. It's what gives that interesting kind of um, shapes that run up the side uh, along the man of the shroud on the linen itself. But despite the fact that you had molten silver dripping onto it, the image of the man on the shroud remained miraculously intact, being spared from the worst of the fire. And then additionally, the relic was then spared a second time from being consumed in a fire in 1997 in Turin, Italy. In fact, firefighters had to smash through four panes of bulletproof glass in order to rescue the shroud. Personally, I'd consider these events, along with the shroud's probable long history, rather miraculous. Point three, pollen and soil samples point to authenticity. Some of the valuable tests done to determine the shroud's authenticity were examining pollen and soil samples pulled from the cloth using tape. This provides another lens to view the relic through. By determining where such pollen and or soil samples are found throughout the known world, we can get a window into the shroud's placement and potentially history. Spitzer's paper explains further, also touching on the sidereum once again. Max Frey was a Swiss botanist and a criminologist who was a professor at the University of Zurich and one of the best-known criminologists in Europe. He was science editor of the German periodical Criminalistic and carried out several pollen classifications on both the shroud and the face cloth of Oviedo. Frey used adhesive tapes to collect dust samples from the shroud during the 1978 STIRP investigation. He later classified 58 pollen grains by comparing them to pollen grains in the largest botanical museums around the world. He concluded that of the 58 pollen grains discovered on the shroud, the largest number, 45, were from the region of Israel, specifically from sedimentary layers from 2,000 years ago near the area of the Sea of Galilee, and six grains from the eastern Middle East, two grains from Edessa, Turkey, and one growing exclusively in Istanbul, Constantinople. The remaining grains came from France and Italy. Importantly, 13 of the pollen grains are unique to Israel and are found at the bottom of both the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The botanist Avanom Danin of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem noted, as far as establishing the shrouds of provenance, Zygophyllium demosum is the most significant plant on the list. Max Frey identified pollen grains of this species on the adhesive tape he examined. The northernmost extent of the distribution of this plant in the world coincides with the line between Jericho and the sea level marker on the road leading from Jerusalem to Jericho. Zyglophilium demosum grows only in Israel, Jordan, and Sinai. Its appearance helps definitively limit the shroud's place of origin. The three major regional similarities of pollen grain groupings indicate a high probability of the shroud's origin and travels. The abundance of grains and unique grains indigenous to Palestine indicate a high probability that the shroud originated there. It was probably manufactured there and exposed to the open air for a considerable period of time. Frey also believed that some of the grains came from the aloes used to anoint the body and from grains that adhered to the wetness of the body after the crucifixion. 
Since we know where the shroud surfaced in Europe, Leary, France, in the hands of Geoffrey de Charnay in 1349, we can deduce from the pollen grains that the shroud must have traveled to Turkey, Edessa, and Constantinople before its arrival in France. The fact that Geoffrey de Charnay was married to Genet de Vergy, a fifth-generation descendant of Othon de la Roche, a leader of the Fourth Crusade who occupied the area of Constantinople in which the shroud was kept, corroborates this. Flay also helped to make a connection between the Shroud of Turin and the Sudarium, the face cloth of Oviedo, by showing a similar origin in Palestine from the presence of indigenous pollen grains from that region on the Sudarium. As we shall see, the Sudarium also bears the same blood and aloe stains as the Shroud. Frey first used dust samples not taken by him from an investigation of the face cloth in 1978, and then used his own samples obtained in 1979. According to Emanuela Marinelli, as on the shroud, also on the sudarium, he found cells of the epidermis of aloe socotrina. He also identified the pollen of 13 plants, four of which do not grow in Europe but are frequently encountered in Palestine in the deserts, in salt places or on rocks, and five others are Mediterranean plants that grow also in Palestine. Freya stressed, the Acacia albida is typical for the Dead Sea area. The Hyosychomus aureus still grows on the walls of the old citadel of Jerusalem. These two plants are represented also on the shroud. Friends, I don't think we could ask for stronger pollen and dirt sample evidence supporting the shroud's authenticity. As I've stated in Season 1 concerning treasures of the faith, it is important as believers to do our due diligence in vetting such claims. What's interesting is that while the Catholic Church has backed away from declaring this relic authentic, the scientific community seems to only be moving closer and closer to validating and supporting the idea that the shroud is the true burial cloth of Jesus Christ. I cannot think of when such a thing has ever happened before. Point number two. The man of the shroud bears the wounds of Jesus Christ as described in the Gospels. What pathology has determined for us regarding the man of the shroud is that he bears wounds identical to what is described of Jesus in the New Testament. He has wounds on the wrists and feet. His body is scourged. There is what appears to be a wound from a spear in his side and his head and neck show dozens of small puncture wounds pointing to the cap of thorns. What's more, this man's injuries align with the practices of Roman crucifixion, the nails piercing the wrists, not the hands, as depicted in Christian artwork. It has been historically and medically confirmed that puncturing the wrists is how victims of crucifixion were nailed. The spear wound matches that of a Roman lance, and the scourge marks have been shown identical to a Roman flagrum. These are the wounds of Jesus Christ, displayed on the image of this man. And let us return to the issue of the blood, as discussed with Barry Schwartz in the last episode. It is real human blood, type AB with a high concentration of bilirubin, signs of an excruciating torture and death. Spitzer's paper deals with some of these issues while also diving more into the blood evidence. The shroud has deposits of real human blood. Dr. Alan Adler, expert on porphyrins, the colored compound seen in blood, and Dr. John Heller, physician, studied the blood flecks gathered on the stirp tapes in 1978. They compared the porphyrin with the spectra of blood spots and determined that the blood on the shroud is real. 
Furthermore, as Dr. Raymond Rogers, leading expert in thermal analytical chemistry, notes, the X-ray fluorescence spectra taken by STIRP showed excess iron in blood areas, as expected for blood. Microchemical tests for proteins were positive in blood areas, but not in any other parts of the shroud. Some researchers have found that male DNA and an AB blood type are also present on the cloth. Though genetic testing confirms these findings, there is no guarantee that they belong to the man on the shroud. The samples are so old and the possibility of contamination so great, they could have originated with someone else. However, the blood stains on the shroud match those of the sudarium, face cloth of Oviedo, which touched the same face. The match of the blood stains themselves, the blood type, and the male genetic character suggest that these characteristics came from the same face that touched both cloths. The image on the shroud is anatomically perfect and a perfect photographic negative. The image was formed after the blood stains congealed on the cloth, and the image and blood stains relative to one another are anatomically correct. The odds of a 13th century forger being able to place blood in a precise way on the cloth without an existing image is highly unlikely, making the forgery hypothesis somewhat dubious from the outset. The image was not produced by any paint, dye, powder, or other artistic chemical, or biological agent, and has no brush strokes. This was confirmed by multiple tests which were overseen by Dr. Raymond Rogers, who noted, the shroud was observed by visible and ultraviolet spectrometry, infrared spectrometry, X-ray fluorescence, spectrometry, and thermography. Later observations were made by pyrolysis, mass spectrometry, laser microphobe romaine analysis, and microchemical testing. No evidence for pigments or media was found. There are some microscopic particles of paint on the cloth unrelated to the image, but these are explained by a medieval custom called sanctification of paintings, in which an artist would paint a copy of the shroud and then touch the painting to the shroud to sanctify it. This contact led to the transfer of some microscopic particles of paint onto the shroud which moved around it when the shroud was folded and rolled. Inasmuch as the blood is real and the image was not produced by a medieval forger, the shroud seems to have enveloped a real man who was crucified in a similar way to Jesus of Nazareth, who underwent a very unique kind of crucifixion, including being crowned with thorns pertinent to the charge leveled against Jesus to be king of the Jews, John 19, 2-3, being flogged, which Pilate ordered for Jesus before presenting him to the crowds, John 19, 1-5, and being pierced in the side by a spear similar to a Roman pilium, which was thrust into Jesus' side to assure that he had already died. John 19.34 The precise nature of the torments undergone by the man on the shroud is detailed by Dr. Pierre Barbet in his famous work, A Doctor at Calvary. The confluence between the shroud and the Gospels is so close, it is difficult to imagine how it could be anyone other than Jesus. These wounds are very specific to those of Jesus of Nazareth and demonstrate just how gruesome a death it must have been for the man of the shroud. What's more, the bloodstains formed after the body was put into the cloth. This means they were a product of the body and not added later. No forger could have possibly applied blood to a blank linen and then somehow produced the anatomically perfect image of a man onto the cloth. In my estimation, it requires more faith viewing this as a fake than seeing this relic as being authentic. This brings me to the final, and in my opinion, strongest point of evidence. 
Point one, how was the image made? After all these years of scientific inquiry and investigation, we still cannot explain how the image of a scourged man bearing the wounds of crucifixion ended up on this piece of ancient linen. What's most fascinating about the image is that it only appears on the topmost pieces of the linen fibers, meaning the discoloration is only on the topmost microscopic layer of fibers. But how? Dr. John Jackson of the Sturt team and the director of the Shroud of Turin Research Center in Colorado developed a very promising scientific theory that fits what we know about the shroud. His theory is the only one so far to fit all the elements the shroud presents. It was a theory involving radiation and what he called fall-through, believing the cloth passed through the body of Christ at the moment of resurrection in what he describes as vacuum ultraviolet radiation. Spitzer's paper delves into this mystery. In sum, there are five major enigmas of the shroud image. One, the fact that the image is limited to the uppermost surface of the fibrils and does not penetrate to the medulla of the fibers. This implies that the image was not produced by chemicals or vapors of any kind. Number two, the fact that the image is not a scorch, but rather discoloration coming from dehydration. This implies that the image could not have been produced by slowly dissipating radiation, which would have scorched it. Three, the image is a perfect photographic negative in which the image intensity is related to the distance of the cloth from the body. Thus, the image was present regardless of whether the cloth touched the body. This implies that radiation, and not chemicals or vapors, was the source of image formation. Number four, there is a double image on the frontal part of the cloth. A more intense image on the front surface, nearest the body, and a less intense image on the back surface, furthest from the body, without any effects between the two surfaces. This implies that the radiation was surrounding both surfaces of the cloth, further implying that the cloth collapsed into a mechanically transparent body. Number five, parts of the frontal image, particularly the hands, show an image which is resolvable into three dimensions, in which the inside skeletal parts of the hands proportionately related to the surrounding exterior flesh on the hand. This implies that the cloth collapsed into and through a mechanically transparent body. The more conventional part of Jackson's hypothesis, that a short intense burst of vacuum ultraviolet radiation emitted from the decomposing body can explain the first three enigmas. However, the fourth and fifth enigmas, the double image on the frontal part of the shroud, as well as the inside skeletal outside flesh characteristic, require the unconventional part of Jackson's hypothesis, in which the body became mechanically transparent, allowing the cloth to collapse into and through it while light emanated evenly from every three-dimensional part of the transparent body. In 2010, six physicists from three research centers were able to confirm the Jackson hypothesis under experimental conditions by creating a burst of ultraviolet radiation through an excimer laser. According to DeLazaro, director of the six-member team, we have irradiated a linen fabric having the same absolute spectral reflectance of the Turin shroud with pulsed deep UV radiation emitted by an ARF excimer laser. We have shown that laser pulses are able to color a very thin layer on the linen yarn, the colorless inner part of a few fibers, suggests that we have locally achieved a colorization of the outermost parts of the fibers. To the best of our knowledge, this is the first coloration of a linen material resembling the very shallow depth of coloration observed in the Turin shroud fibers. 
The team specified that three of the above five enigmas were explained and experimentally confirmed by this method precisely as Jackson predicted. In an interview with Psy News, DeLazaro said in particular, vacuum ultraviolet photons account for one, the very thin colorization depth, two, the hue of color, and three, the presence of image in linen parts not in contact with the body. Obviously, it does not mean the image was produced by a laser. Rather, the laser is a powerful tool to test and obtain the light parameters suitable for a shroud-like colorization. He adds that a single laser alone could not explain the image over the full length of the body. In fact, it would have taken 14,000 lasers, like the one used by DeLazaro, to produce a full body image like the one on the shroud. The characteristics of the kind of light impulse that would be needed to produce an image like that on the shroud are quite remarkable. According to DeLazaro, the ultraviolet light necessary to form the image exceeds the maximum power released by all ultraviolet light sources available today. It would require pulses having durations shorter than 1 40 billionth of a second and intensities on the order of several billion watts. How exactly could a normal decomposing body do something like this? In sum, DeLazarel's research confirms Jackson's theory that a short intense burst of vacuum ultraviolet radiation can produce an image on the uppermost surfaces of the fibrils, which is discolored through dehydration rather than a scorch, yielding a perfect photographic negative image on parts of the cloth not in contact with the body. However, his experiment did not confirm how the other two enigmas of the image originated, the double image on the frontal part of the shroud and the image on the inside and outside of the hands. Recall that Jackson had to supplement his vacuum ultraviolet radiation hypothesis with the most unconventional hypothesis of a mechanically transparent man to account for these other two enigmas. We should not be surprised that DeLazaro and his team were not able to confirm the fourth and fifth enigmas of the image because they were not able to reproduce a mechanically transparent body in which light emanated evenly from every part. These two enigmas may never be reproducible under experimental conditions because the only known explanation of them from Jackson supersedes the known laws of physics. Thus, we may be left with a plausible explanation for the image that cannot be, strictly speaking, physically reproducible and experimentally verifiable. Is this the burial cloth of Jesus Christ? Friends, I don't see any other viable option. How could a forger or a medieval monk have produced such an icon? He would have had to crucify a man, wrap him in a shroud, and then somehow transfer the man's image to the cloth, with the power of 14,000 lasers. This fictional artist would also have had no way to check his work. The vivid image of the man that we have now wasn't visible to the naked eye until photographed at the end of the 19th century. Given the abundance of evidence, I am convinced that this is the image of our Lord and Savior, a remarkable yet horrifying look at what his passion actually cost him, a suffering and torture done on our behalf. Do we need the Shroud of Turin to have faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection? No. How does Christ respond to Thomas, who was in doubt that Jesus had risen from the tomb? John twenty twenty nine through 31 Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here, Christ tells us that those who believe on faith are the ones who are blessed. The book of Hebrews 1.11 defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It means that we believe in God can be trusted. However, I would also point out that while the blessing goes to those who believe without having seen evidence, Jesus does not hide himself from Thomas and freely shows him the markings of his passion. Thomas did believe that day, which was better than staying in unbelief. I think it's important we do not look down on those who might require more convincing of the promises of God. After all, God gave Noah a rainbow, a promise to never flood the earth again. God provided the Ark of the Covenant for the Israelites, a physical object in which they would approach to enter the presence of God. Likewise, perhaps this is something that is left for the church today, a remarkable reminder of the passion of Jesus Christ. So what is the point of understanding that this relic is authentic? Is it merely to help the unbeliever come to faith in Christ? Perhaps that is one purpose, though I dare say, even with evidence pointing to Christ's death and resurrection, many will still remain unconvinced. Even our guest, Mr. Barry Schwartz, who believes in the authenticity of the shroud, still denies the resurrection. In regard to the carbon-14 dating test, it comes as no surprise that they would have had a keen interest in making sure the relic was seen as inauthentic. I am sure that they understood full well the implications had it been seen as otherwise. And it's not uncommon with carbon dating to see issues and errors. If you recall our Genesis problem series, given the dinosaur soft tissues that we're finding in fossils that are apparently millions and millions of years old, which clearly is impossible given the datings that we've been shown. I don't need science to tell me what is plainly obvious. This is the image of our Lord displaying the wounds of his passion at the moment of his resurrection. For if we can trust the New Testament in regard to what it had to say about Jesus' suffering, death, and burial, why then would we not trust it concerning his resurrection? If this is the image of Jesus Christ, let us not forget what he had to say concerning eternity. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14.6 As Christians, I think it's important to know what the science shows about the shroud, not for the purposes of proving the resurrection or Christianity, but in order to determine whether this is the actual burial cloth. Because if this does show Jesus Christ at the moment of resurrection, shouldn't that matter to us? After all, it is God who has allowed this linen cloth to last for over two centuries. And I would add, even seeing this as the authentic burial cloth, that the goal is never to worship the cloth itself. The shroud should, in my opinion, prompt us in faith to be drawn more closely to the one whom it portrays, the living Christ. In the same way, we would not fall in love with a picture of our spouse over the person themselves. We show our love and affection to Jesus, not the image of him, giving him all the glory, worship, and praise. The shroud is but a stark reminder, an altar, if you will, to the Lord that reminds us of all he has done for us. It is my conviction that our Father in heaven has allowed us to poke, prod, cut, test, and analyze this very image of Christ Jesus as a reminder to believers of what it was that was done for us. After all, if this is truly our Lord's image, and I believe it is, then the shroud is acting as a silent witness allowing us to see that which has not been seen for almost 2,000 years.
Truly, we should count ourselves as blessed and should approach this artifact in a spirit of discernment rather than skepticism. Consider also the miraculous preservation of the shroud and all the tests that have been performed on it. God in his sovereignty has allowed it. For what purpose? And why now? The shroud has been of known history since the 1300s, but it is only in the last 45 years that we have been granted all the scientific data and analysis to view Christ head to toe, bearing all the marks of his suffering. It is both a breathtaking and grim reminder that he who was faithful to endure the cross will be faithful to return for his people. It is why I believe this relic has come into the spotlight in these last few decades, because these last few decades are late in the hour, friends, and he who died and rose again, who ascended into the heavens, is coming again, and will return in the same way he departed. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you would like to support the show, please follow the link in the show description, where for $5 a month, you can get monthly long-form bonus episodes. If you have questions or comments, please send me an email at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our Twitter at Casey Knowlton or the Facebook page, This Late Hour. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to Barry's website, shroud.com, as well as a link to the paper used in today's episode by Father Robert J. Spitzer, Ph.D. This brings an end to our Shroud of Turns special. As we enter the summer months, episodes will return to a bi-weekly release schedule. Weekly episode releases will return come the fall. Thank you so much for joining me for this seventh episode of Season 2 of This Late Hour. Stay on the alert, dear Christian, and may God richly bless you on this, the day of our Lord's Ascension. Amen.